Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Look at that. That worked. A perfect night. Synchronized hello. Oh. Wow. A thing of beauty. Stunning. Stunning. Um, at the top of this episode. Mm. Oh yeah. Historically badass broads. I'm Chloe, you're Mora. It's a great time. Yep. Let's just get through get that info out of the way. We got it out. <laughs> It's out in the open. <laughs> I'd like to say hi to Jack. You Me know too. Hi Jack. You know who you are. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Jack. Hee <laughs> hee. All right. <laughs> I'm excited about this month. Okay. I'm I'm getting into it. We're going right there. Okay. The excitement for this month is such that it's my second favorite Eleanor on the face of this planet. Ooh. First is obviously Eleanor of Aquitaine. Thank you. For Thank you. Those who aren't avid listeners of this <laughs> hashtag pod. I think we did four and a half hours on her. Did we actually? And by we, I mean I subjected you to that. The people have agency. The people can choose to turn it off. They listened. No, but I'm talking to you, Chloe. Oh, I was subjected. You don't have yeah, that agency. That, you true. had to do it. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, were, you were forced to sit there and take it and you know what all it, of it. You know what, just... though? If you think about it, hmm. I consented to doing the podcast. So in that you, sense- in fact, encouraged it so in that sense still wasn't subjected <laughs> it was an implicit consent there you go well this won't be as long <laughs> okay <laughs> but i'm really excited so in honor of our collective birthday we are doing eleanor roosevelt today oh exciting indeed I have been a fan ever since I was a very small child because mm-hmm. I was born October 11th, mm-hmm. which is a weird day only because like no one was born on that day. Like people have died on that day, but like for some reason it's not a common day on which to be born. Are you talking Everyone's born about on October celebrities? 10th or 12th. I'm just talking about like people in general. I've never, I've met How one other person, through? my friend Kenan, hi Kenan, who's born on my birthday and that's it. Or our birthday. Sorry, Kenan. Something tells me that a lot of people have been born on October 11th. Of course they have been <laughs> statistically. I'm simply saying in my own uh, uh, survey of people I have ever met, okay, it, it, there's been one. And his name is my friend, Kenan. Okay. I will say in support of your claim. Do you claim, know someone with this birthday? No. Yeah. But I do know like 15 people with my birthday. That's what I'm saying. I feel yeah. like it's more common. You're like, oh, yeah. Like my sister's birthday. Mm-hmm. My other one of my like best friends. It's her birthday, too. So within your circle, this is an uncommon birthday. 
Indeed. Except, except that you do know <laughs> except that you do know someone. But but we met when we were kind of how old were we? We were uh twenty one. In theater camp. Of okay. course. Where else do you meet? <laughs> where else may one meet besides theater? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. That's where I'm. I've everyone. never been, but um, I heard it's great. Well, it was. It wasn't a camp. It was a program at the O'Neill in Connecticut. It was wonderful. Ah, yes, but anyway, I'm familiar with that one. Yes, ah, and yes. so oh, he's the only person I know, and we always text each other on our birthdays. We're like, "Hey, birthday buddy." Cute. Oh wait, I know one other person. Okay, I'm proving myself wrong, but the my exciting friend Marissa's thing. Right. nephew was born on my birthday two days. Two the years exciting ago, thing ago. is that Eleanor Roosevelt. Yes, sorry. Okay, to go back, <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt and Matt Bomer are the two celebrities I know who were born on my birthday. Yes. Okay, these are good ones though. I know. I keep good company. Heck yeah. I'm excited. So we're going to 1884, kids. Guys, it's so recent for me. <laughs> I, when you said Eleanor Roosevelt, I did. That was my first thought. That's recent. I know. And we're allowed to do it because she's been, she has officially been dead for over 50 years. Wow. Is that the rule? It's my rule. <laughs> Who knew? I guess we all do I told do you. <laughs> selective <laughs> I told memory. You. <laughs> <laughs> it's only because I'm like, well, most of the people who would have anything objectionable to say about anything i could say not that they would listen or i don't know like they're not alive except she does have living grandchildren and great-grandchildren so mm-hmm. anyway we'll talk we'll talk so we're going to october 11th of 1884 we're going to manhattan it's a great city wow. have you heard of it chloe uh, <laughs> do you basically no. live there <laughs> i've never heard of it actually man hat tan a tan hat yes a man in a tan hat is that it, it, correct is that the yes play? cool I believe that's why it's called that. It's not because it's a Dutch thing. I think it's because there was a man in a tan hat. That's what I always say. Yeah, yeah. It's important to know your history. <laughs> it is. <laughs> We're all about real information here. I not, get not that information without laughing. It was good. Um, we have two socialites who came together and had three kids. We have Anna Rebecca Hall and Elliot Roosevelt. Mm. Fun little side note about my family. And this seems a little unrelated, but it's not. I only found out two years ago that my grandma, my dad's mom, my grandma Judy, who's the greatest person, she was obsessed with the Roosevelts. And I didn't understand or know this until I was reading a book um, by Doris Goodwin about the Roosevelts. And it's because everyone in my family is named after a Roosevelt. And I didn't know that. Huh. So my dad's Elliot. It's spelled with two L's and two T's, mm-hmm. which is a, a very uncommon spelling and very annoying for him because it's like my name. Thanks, dad. Uh, no one can spell it right. Mm. And, um, you know, it. my uncle, his name is Fred, short for Frederick. Mm-hmm. That There's a Frederick Roosevelt. Uh, my other uncle his birth name is kermit which is before kermit the frog so you can't blame my grandma and there was a kermit roosevelt very famously wow um he changed his name to his middle name eric um and then my youngest uncle mark his middle name is franklin (laughs) wow so grandma what's up 
she's passed away, but I'm still curious. That's, anyway, that's some real appreciation. All, all the Roosevelt names. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All the Roosevelt names. Deeply curious. That's so funny. So Eleanor was born Anna Eleanor after her mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and but she was always known by her middle name. She was a niece of Teddy Roosevelt, president, like crazy adventurer, uh, colonizer, many complicated thoughts about him. But he was an interesting guy. Um, she was his niece through her dad. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And the Halls were a very high-ranking, like, socialite family. If you've heard of the group around the turn of the century, like, the Swells, it, it's – that's what her family – she was born into. It's, like, extremely – Wealthy, social, high-class group in New York City Mm -hmm. around this time. Mm -hmm. So she was born to two socialites, and they were not equipped to have children or be happy together, um, unfortunately. So she had a younger brother whose nickname was Hall. It just – they weren't good at it? (laughs) Not equipped sounds like they um, didn't have the the (laughs) – money or the The equipment no they had they had the equipment they had children obviously they had three kids they had three kids um so and uh eleanor was the oldest of their kids by the way sorry eleanor and then she had a younger brother named elliot after the dad and then a younger brother a second younger brother named gracie hall um and but he was just known by hall um and so she was born in 1884, Elliot was born in 1889, and Gracie Hall or Hall was born in 1891. And interesting family, weird fam. Um, they were a part, they were on the USS Britannic um, when it actually was in a boat crash. And then they were like rescued she was only two but it completely cemented her fear of uh ships and the sea for the rest of her life which makes complete sense Mm -hmm. um can you imagine being i can't even imagine it'd be terrible also i get really seasick so it's not like i find myself on boats all the time i am afraid Um, of the sea so i can in fact imagine i remember this and it's i remember you going oh it's so irrational no it's not it's also it's not an irrational fear it's the largest So it it also does. Go. It is rational in that sense as well. <laughs> it's entirely rational. You're justified. It's not powerful. that you didn't think you weren't. You know, but it, in, it makes complete sense. In New York today, the weather app has a rip current warning. That stuff's scary. Rip currents are scary. Where's there a rip current in New York? Uh, let's check it out. Is it in the river? National Weather Service. Rip current statement in Kings County, Brooklyn. We have rip currents all the time in San Diego. Do you, Do you know, know how what? to get out of a rip current? You know Should you find that? yourself in that unlikely situation? Yes, and-, and that is, in fact, the trauma that I experienced as a child. I was taken out to sea in a oh, rip God. current. Mm-hmm. <gasps> Chloe! Mm-hmm. Little baby Chloe, no. It was scary. I was too, as but I don't remember anyone it. can imagine, it was scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My mom says that I was, and someone saved me. And my sister. Oh, that's good. A family friend. But I don't, I was, I was so small that I don't remember it. I was actually, I was taken out with my mom, but it split us <gasps> up. Oh my God, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. 
It's crazy. Well, should the unlikely ever happen again, you swim parallel to the beach. Yes. Dear so, listener. There you go. Take note. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> rip currents aside. Yes. The sea is traumatizing and scary and very large and it makes complete sense. And very powerful. Very, po- very powerful. Also, full of so many animals. Yeah, I'm not into that either. I'm, I love it. It's their home. Happy so, for the ecosystem that it provides. I'm happy for them. Yes. But I'm, I don't need to explore it. Stay very far from me, please. <laughs> <laughs> so this is why you haven't visited me. I get it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, the place that I'm um, from in France has like okay. jellyfish everywhere. Pandemics happen a lot around this time period, unfortunately. Diphtheria goes around. And in 1892, um, unfortunately... Anna Hall, Eleanor's mom, gets diphtheria and passes away in December of 1892. And the following May of 1893, her younger brother, Elliot, dies as well. Mm. And this is an interesting thing in her family. On both sides of the family, they have raging alcoholics. Raging. Mm. Like, it's bad. Ugh. It's bad. It It's so pervasive. It's on the Roosevelt side. It's also in the Hall side. It's mm. not good. Mm-hmm. And Eleanor always said... Um, she never much wanted to parent anyone except for her father. Mm-hmm. Um, she was deeply devoted to him. And his alcoholism was a problem in, on and off. Um, but after his wife and son died, obviously, it, it completely was out of control. He was – they sought treatment in and around Europe for a little bit when the mom and um, – when Anna was still alive. But mm-hmm. it just wasn't helpful. Um, so it just didn't last. It couldn't last. And then, of course – his wife and one of his children dies. So he relapses really severely. It's really not good. And in 1894, he's confined to a sanitarium, which is, was a common treatment, um, you know, for people who had this problem Hmm. and addiction and his withdrawals. I guess. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. The sanitarium was scarier. It does. It does. It was really more of a, a, yeah, a rehab would be the equivalent term. And it was a hospital setting, right, right. Um, a place where you could go and convalesce and, and be better with people taking care of you. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he suffered from delirium tremens, which is um, can happen when you're suffering severe withdrawals. You can have a state of delirium and he jumps from a window in the sanitarium. Oh, geez. And he initially survives, but it causes him to have a seizure and he ends up passing away. So My Eleanor goodness. is an orphan by 1894. Mm. So she's just about 10, not quite. Mm. And it's just her and her younger brother, Hall. And she, before her father died, he said, please like act as Hall's mom for him. Mm-hmm. And she was absolutely devoted to her younger brother like she was everything to him and he to her um when he went to his boarding school she took him there as a chaperone unpacked his bags you know like (laughs) she wrote him daily um she kept saying i wish that he could have had a more full childhood and all i kept thinking was ma'am you're 10 (laughs) yeah what about what about yours yeah Mm -hmm. um but he was extremely intelligent and he ends up uh, becoming a Harvard man. Sure. 
like many men in her family. Um, but he was brilliant. He ended up getting a master's in engineering. So like he was absolutely brilliant wow. um, and did very well in life. Unfortunately, he was also an alcoholic. Um, so. <laughs> Great. <sighs> yeah, it was just really bad. It was really common in their family. Um, Kermit, I think, died of alcoholism. And yeah, a lot of them. And to this, I say to my dearly beloved but past Grandma Judy, if I could, if they all died of alcoholism, why did you name your kids after them? <laughs> but okay. Well, you know, the people they were, the things they accomplished, the disease is not the person, et cetera, et cetera. I know, but had you ever heard of a Kermit Rosen- Roosevelt? I hadn't. No, I hadn't. But I like the thought that she took a real deep dive into that entire family Me history. Me too. And also- she was the coolest. Kermit became such an exciting name. I feel like she knew Poor deep man. down. He was very unhappy with it, obviously. But you said he went by Eric. He goes by Eric. He does. He goes yeah. Problem solved. Yeah. Um, Personally, I like the name Kermit. But uh, me too. I, I understand. I, every time I, I understand. see him, like, <laughs> Kermit. I understand um, how easy so. it is to dislike your own name, though. You know? I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. <laughs> I really do get it. Exactly. Oh, no one can pronounce it or they make fun of you? Interesting. I still don't understand why that happens to you. I've said this on the podcast before. It's a very like, I think because I know Mora's, it's like a very normal spelling and a very normal pronunciation to me. Mm-hmm. Not in California. So oh, Yeah. Every time you say that, I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't great. Come back to and New York. What's interesting is, well, and then I moved there and everyone's like, yeah, we do know how to say your name. I'm like, oh, the Irish are strong here. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I just remember every, every time I meet someone and I give them my name, they're like, oh, I knew Amora. She sucked. And I was like, oh, God. Oh, why would you ever say that to someone? Every time I say I meet someone, they say that. It doesn't make any sense. Like every time. And they say that they knew one. They go, you oh, she's terrible. different people. All these people are wrong. Well, you didn't say that to me. That was nice. Of course not. Because I know like 15 Moras. <laughs> How many of them sucked? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They're all great. Oh, oh my God. This is so exciting. See? Back to Eleanor. The poor orphaned Ellie. Mothering Eleanor. What's interesting is she and she later has like a really complicated relationship with mothering and motherhood. Um mm-hmm. she has six kids. So um, wow. but yeah, deeply complicated relationship with it. And I think it was just because she was not equipped to do much as an individual. Like she was very well educated, so she can speak like five different languages and she can you know, hold a conversation, although she was extremely shy and mm-hmm. did not like being very social. She ends up overcoming it quite a bit. I think what's really interesting is I, for my seventh birthday, I requested her autobiography and I have the copy still here in front of me. It checks out. It does check it doesn't out. doesn't surprise anyone. Factually, it, it checks out. Yes. <laughs> it was my favorite book growing up, one of them, and it still is. And I have it here. Um, uh. And it's a wonderful – she wrote so many lovely books, and I've read all of them because I'm one of her biggest fans. And what I love is that she has such a distinctive voice. And it was very curious, though, reading this again. I hadn't read this her autobiography in a while. Mm-hmm. And it was really curious reading again, like, as an older individual. Mm-hmm. She just is very matter-of-fact. And I think it was clear that as she was trying to move through her life, she suffered loss after loss after loss. I mean, it was consistent. It was devastating. And it was always a fairly public thing because her uncle was the president of the United States and a very, before he was president, a very public figure. 
and her families were extremely well regarded and and fairly public in the world as well, especially in New York, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it was just a really tricky situation. So I think she was kind of raised to be a public figure to a degree, although she wouldn't, I don't think she would have said that about herself. I think she said that she came to it very unwillingly. Um, and it was something she had to adjust to, but I don't know. Well, and we'll talk about that more as she gets older. Um, but yeah, I just find her so interesting in that regard. So as we're discussing all these losses in her book, she's as matter of fact about it all as I'm being, which is very curious to me. And obviously that's a coping mechanism. It's all the above, Mm -hmm. but within, um, you know, I don't know. I think within, what is it? 10 or 11 pages of the book, which is 400 and something pages. Um, her parents have already died and she's moving on in her story, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's very curious to me. Um, and I think as we talk about later things in her life, um, if you read just her autobiography, there'd be a lot of context that you're missing. And obviously it's her chance of telling her own story. And she started writing this, I think, in 1932 and it was published in like 60 something. So it's kind of an interesting perspective. So just know that I have a timeline up as well as her autobiography. But if we were just to trust it, it would be that this was a horrible time in her life, but it was just a facet of her childhood. Like, mm-hmm. you know, right. she doesn't really talk about it that much. It was just mm-hmm. what happened. Um, one thing I will mention, which is something I think is very entertaining. I was talking with my sister a couple weeks ago and apparently there's a thing on TikTok, although now I am active on the talk. Um, I didn't have this come up to me, but she, Alyssa, my sister brought up. Are you just going to, I don't know if this happened to you. That you're active on TikTok now. Perhaps. This is a big deal. (sighs) I'm very (laughs) conflicted about it. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't like that I feel like I want to check it every day, multiple times a day. I don't like that. I'm going to let you know something, though. It does go away. It does? Yeah. I don't feel that way anymore. Stunning. Now it's like, oh, I have like a bunch of time to kill before I have to leave. Hmm. What should I do? I guess I could like go on TikTok for a bit. Okay. That's where, it, that's where it's I'm at. on like doctor and ex-Mormon TikTok, which I'm a big fan of. Those are great TikToks to be on. They're very funny. And I've and learned a lot. that's why you're on them. Because you <laughs> feel this way. <laughs> I know. That's how it works. I don't like that. <laughs> I, when my sister was here, she was here for a while. We found that our algorithms were combining and she was like, I don't like this. <laughs> so oh, do they do it like, oh my gosh, I don't even, that's a deep and I don't want to know. Rabbit hole. All I know is we kept getting the same videos and all of a sudden we were getting like the same thematic things and she's like, no, you're ruining my algorithm. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I love I don't know how that. I love that. Um, okay, wait, wait sorry. No. What's the trend? That when, I don't know if this happened to you. When we were children, were you taught that Eleanor Roosevelt was ugly? No. You weren't. No. Was it mentioned? Was it brought up in any way? No. Okay. Well, my sister was watching something and I think she, it reminded her of the fact that like, how weird is it? And this was, this did happen to us that we were taught that she was like an ugly person. Hmm. 
I think that's horrific. I have a lot of theories for it. Most of them are obviously the patriarchy. Sure. Um, clearly. But also, you know, what's the first thing we do to detract from a woman who did some important things? Well, we say we attack her looks. Uh, for the record, I don't think she was a particularly not pretty individual. I think she was actually quite lovely looking. And we will show photos of her as a younger individual to show you. And also later, I just think she could have benefited from a slightly different haircut. Anyway, uh, that to it, say. Is it something? Hmm. Is it something that affected her life while she was yes. around like were people treating Deeply. her differently or mentioning it very much so okay then then i do her think mother it's worth, was i i do think it makes yeah. sense that it's taught then if it is part of her life well it wasn't taught that her mom who was a famous socialite beauty uh called her granny because she was so ugly apparently and did not like her daughter basically like was that's ashamed gonna, of how plain she was that's gonna help the self-esteem yeah, and I think what's really curious to me is in so much of this book, I'm trying to find it. I've pulled – she just basically said – so we'll talk about it. She ends up going to um, a couple different boarding schools, and she basically is like, it's a real shame I'm this ugly. Like, she keeps saying it, and I'm just like, oh, I just don't like it. <laughs> no, it's dark. I don't like it. It makes me so upset and she's always bringing it up like it's just this fact because it was told to her like it was this fact that she was so ugly that her mother called her granny and because she was so serious and so hideous and she was like her mom did not like her because she wasn't as pretty as her or what like mm. what what so that's so damaging to a young girl and it's so damaging to anyone mm-hmm. and anyway so it's a common theme throughout her life which is something I think is just horrific but I bring it up because I'm curious of our listeners, how many of you were like taught that she was ugly as an adult? Not that, not that it was like she was a young child and this was brought up by her mom. And so we were learning a complex history of this woman's life, but that she was a fact that she was just this ugly person and she was an interesting one in spite of that. You know, mm. that's what I'm curious about. We're conducting an unofficial poll. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well, well for the instagram i'll put a picture of her first and in the caption i'll remind the listeners of that question how many of you were taught this garbage um (laughs) luckily not me i'm very happy with the brooklyn new york (laughs) school system specifically this one really artsy (laughs) the laid back school school specifically yes well, honestly, though, because I went to, I mean, I went to public school my whole life and I'm like kind of surprised that it was just part of the garbage history books that we were taught from. I will um, say if, if it is, I, I do understand why. I do understand why though. I mean, I don't like it, obviously. I don't think, I, I even feel, your th- I'm I, curious. I feel uncomfortable when we talk about how beautiful people are. Honestly, I feel like looks just don't. I don't know. I guess they do matter in a lot of ways, but it just like it frustrates me that they're a part. For I was yeah, it's fair. I think for a lot of the women though, it it was a major facet of their import, you know, which is just wild. But and I would say that my argument for why it would make sense is this seems to be doing the same thing. I mean, if it was so deeply part of her mindset and the way that she went about the world, it it makes sense that Okay. It would come up. Okay, yeah. No, I get that. I think 
My objection to it being taught was mm-hmm. perhaps more the way it's been taught, which that is makes not total that sense. it was complex for her mm-hmm. and it was a facet of her personality mm-hmm. and something that she was dealing with. And it was that she was ugly. Like that was just taught. Right. It wasn't that she was brought up and she literally thought she was an ugly duckling and that she had a hard time wanting love Mm -hmm. because of it. Like as a child that it made her complex and had a difficult relationship with affection and all that. No, it wasn't that. It was just that we were taught that she was not pretty. She wasn't a pretty woman. I feel like that's what I remember being taught. I feel like it's that, that phrase that I can't think of right now where when, when you speak it, it becomes a thing. True. Do you know the phrase I'm going for? Yeah, the word was manifesting that I was thinking of, but I was like, that's not it. It's like, you know, if if you say it enough times and if you believe it and if you go out into the world thinking of yourself that way, others will start to view you the same way and treat you the same way. Do you know what I mean? I do. I I just forget what that phrase is. I don't I don't mean to be argumentative. I don't necessarily think that's what's happening here though. Got it. My only reason is she was quite an active political figure, obviously, and we will talk about that. Mm-hmm. And it was a way to de- to like delegitimize her Got and it. anything that she did. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, wow, look at her doing it, even though she's whatever. It was more like, I don't know. It was just the way that they attacked her with it. Mm-hmm. That for me is so like... Why? <laughs> like, I get, I understand it. I don't, obviously, I abhor it. Right. Um, but it's just very curious to me. So, yeah, anyway, so it, I, I can't imagine, you know, growing up feeling that way and being taught that, I mm-hmm. think is. It's wrong. Just horrific. Yeah, it's so Yeah. Wrong. Yeah. So she was raised by her grandma at this point. Um, and when she was 14, she literally wrote down, that no matter how plain a woman may be, if truth and loyalty are stamped upon her face, all will be attracted to her. <laughs> 14. Mm. Oh. She's like, I guess I can still be worth something. Um, she had a very interesting education. So she was tutored privately, like by governesses, which was very common for people of her ilk. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the age of like 15, she was sent to a finishing school in London called Allenswood Academy. And it was a really cool place. Marie Suvest was a incredible educator who was actually, I don't know if she was an open lesbian at the time, but like, it's very well known that she was one. Mm. Um, she was obviously French and took a, a wonderful liking to Eleanor and really was about cultivating independence in women. And Eleanor talks a lot about what an influence she was in her life. Um, they, Madame Suggest, Suvest, Mademoiselle, excuse me, she never married, um, took her on trips all over Europe, like during breaks. And Eleanor was like, I needed to be in charge of planning the trip. So I had to do the tickets and the packing and all the above. And she says how much it taught her to be independent. She wasn't raised to be independent. This mm-hmm. is what formulated that in her life and taught her a love of travel, which was something she did kind of constantly. Hmm. Um, So it really gave her this, I don't know, the sense of confidence and independence that she ends up saying she later lost in the first years of her marriage, but regained throughout Hmm. 
the rest of her life. Um, yeah. And I think she was just really exciting. So she, they maintained a correspondence until Madame, Mademoiselle Souvest died in 1905, but she always had a portrait of her on her desk and like brought their correspondence with her everywhere she went. So big, big influence on Eleanor. Mm. Um, and so in 1902, she was summoned back home to New York. She had to make her social debut. She was 17. She was a debutante of the Waldorf Astoria. She sure. was given a coming out party. She says later of it, it was simply awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And one of the reasons that she mentions, which I think is really interesting, is that because she spent four four years, three or four years abroad – all of the people that she had known in New York like of her own age group, she lost touch with because she was not there and she, they didn't grow up together. You know, right. those are formative years to be friends or not to be friends. Yeah. And so she felt like it was just horrible. It was so miserable because she didn't know anyone. And so she felt really alone. Plus, I feel like she has advanced a lot in mm-hmm. growing and the independence that you mentioned and also becoming worldly and just like growing mentally and physically in in a way that 100%. i feel like people who her her peers who stayed probably didn't which i think also too. sets her yeah. aside definitely i yeah their, their interests might be different the things that matter to them might be different i'm sure they were you know? <laughs> like <laughs> yeah i'm sure they were like this was a great ball and she's like i just want to go home <laughs> <laughs> yeah or like have you been anywhere else in the world can we talk about something else <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> very true. Um, that same year, 1902, she's 17. She meets her father's fifth cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, on a train. Train meet cute? A train meet cute, and they start chatting. They start having a correspondence, and they are kind of into each other, which I kind of love. They're fifth, they're sixth cousins. So, yes, they are related, but it's not like they're first cousins. Does that um, make it okay? No, but it makes it like less annoying genetically for their children. I was going to say less, less genetically dangerous. I would argue. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. I let it so, go. I release my expectations for history. I let it go. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and again, this is still over 100 years ago. This wasn't uncommon. Sure keep the blood and pure later it's really funny teddy roosevelt says of uh, what do you think about them keeping the name of the family it's like it's great you better keep roosevelt's together oh goodness. Keep, good thing to keep the name of the family that's what he said stunning um yeah he's wild okay. he was an interesting guy i know i have to not like him for many things he did but i can't help but have a slight affection for how weird he was why not she meets franklin and she was miserable during her like seasons being out. And so what's interesting is in her, in this autobiography, she ends up saying like, we never did anything untoward. I would never have thought about doing anything, but like their secret correspondence was actually quite scandalous because they didn't let anyone know. Mm-hmm. And it, it, yeah, they were not like very open with it. But I think later we find out that Sarah Ann Delano, who was Franklin's mom, who is quite an interesting individual 
did not want him to marry her. And so they got engaged officially. I don't know why. I think she just didn't like her. And I think she just didn't want him to marry her. I don't know. Sure. Again, I don't really know specifically Mm -hmm. what it was about Eleanor that she did not like. I, I don't really... I think she just didn't like her. I think it was just one of those that was like, ugh. Moms can my do that. son. Yeah, they can do that. Because he was, sure. was he their only, I think she was. Yeah, she was the only, he was her only child. Right. So she was extreme, think of like overbearing, like a lot. Yeah, that was her. Per- only the perfect woman. Maybe with my son. For my perfect baby. Exactly. Son. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And Eleanor, who was by all accounts, extremely kind and intelligent, was shy and not apparently a society beauty and also didn't really love going out and doing all the things that a girl of her age should have liked doing. I say should, Mm -hmm. you know. Which is trendy now. She would have done well now. It's trendy to stay home. Curl up with Netflix, call yourself an introvert. It all works out in the end. It would have been great. People are really accepting of it now. (laughs) I know. All the memes Which of nobody me so wanting happy. to go out. It's great. It's great. <laughs> and that there's literally nothing better than the feeling of canceling plans. <gasps> oh my gosh. I oh. get high from it. Oh. It's the best. I just got chills when you said it. I know. I got them too. <laughs> oh. Oh. Eleanor would have lived for it. Um, she would have thrived. <laughs> thrived. So they become engaged November 22nd of 1903. Eleanor is 18 maybe 19 or just just turned 19 i think gosh math um and she was so sarah ann delano was so pissed off and she said do not announce this for a year like do not do this and he franklin writes to her and he says i know what pain i must have caused you but i know my own mind known it for a long time and know that i could never think otherwise oh you'll hate him later don't worry oh no Mm. Uh, so Sarah, Sarah took him on a cruise in 1904 to the Caribbean, hoping like, please break them up. And he was like, nah, I'm still into it. So they end up. I wanted to wait to announce it for a year because the plan was to try and break them up before it's announced. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of iconic. (laughs) Truly. She was a nightmare, but yes. Love the scheming. Love it. She was a horrible woman. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I'm sarcastic too much on this podcast, and sometimes it comes off as me genuinely supporting bad things. I just want to put it out into the universe that that was sarcastic. (laughs) I was thinking about it as it was coming out. I actually – no, it's good. I didn't catch it, so thank you for – what it is is, though, really, like, it is iconic. I do actually – It is a horrible thing to do. I do actually think it's iconic, but I I do not think it's great. (laughs) (laughs) There there's, are so many moms like line. this. <laughs> and there's so, a whole Hallmark movie industry that is based on that too. That plot line. That's true. That's true. And I'm going to watch every single one of them. Okay. <gasps> I cannot be stopped. The Christmas <laughs> season is you. approaching, Maura. It's upon us almost. The Christmas Hallmark movie season is approaching. <sighs> That's my nightmare. That is my... Don't, don't. It's creepy. Stop. Well, first is spooky season. Spooky. So. Yes. <laughs> they, at this point, Teddy Roosevelt is president. 
And so he was supposed to be in New York City for the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And so he's like, they're like, perfect timing. You can give the bride away. Because they were pretty close, Mm -hmm. her uncle. So on March 17th of 1905, two years after they were engaged, they were married um, in a family estate of Franklin's mother's family. Mm-hmm. Her cousin was a bridesmaid, and because Teddy Roosevelt was at the ceremony and gave her away, it was big news. It was like front page news at the end of the New York Times. It was a big deal. And then, so the couple they they she makes a joke about the fact that they had two honeymoons, but the reason why is because they had a week at Hyde Park. Hyde Park is the it, it's the family estate in New York. There's a the Hyde Park Roosevelts. It's a thing. It's a whole hmm. thing. Not overlooking the Hudson. No. Yeah. Hyde Park is a is a house. Got it's it. It's quite a house. You can still visit it, thankfully. Um, I'll go today. And you could. You could go. <laughs> I, I, well, really, I, I actually, think you can still go. I actually really could. I really think you should. And then tell me about it. Or we go together next time I'm in New York. Anyway. There you go. Um, it's hey. a Sunday. I don't have work. Hey. Well, I'm not there. All right. I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. I have a, I have a, okay. So <laughs> they... And then they set up like a little apartment to live in in New York, but then they end up going on their quote formal honeymoon, which was a three month tour of Europe, which wasn't uncommon. So yes, they were from this wealthy family, but like, just so you know, they were, she had a minor inheritance from her parents and, but like, it wasn't enough to live on really, especially once she started having kids Mm -hmm. and he was working and they didn't really benefit that much from like their family connections. And, you know, obviously because people were still alive. So, um, yeah, so they, they, money was a little tight for them, obviously not as tight for other people. And she acknowledges that, but it was just interesting reading about that because that's not the impression I ever had. Um, right. Then in New York city, um, Franklin's mom, uh, set up a house for them and, they, she basically built two townhouses and connected them by sliding doors. No. And, yes. And wait, the households wait. were run by her. Uh-huh. Let me clarify something. They each are yeah. in a separate house or they're in one house and the mother's in the other house. Franklin and Eleanor are in a house that is connected by a sliding door to the house that Franklin's mom lives in. Great. That's what I thought. As designed and that is a nightmare. and built by Sarah. That is a nightmare. Um, thank you for clarifying. Please continue. And Sarah <laughs> ran both households. What's interesting is <laughs> later, Eleanor says it was to quote a bit of a relief that I she 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 basically was like I would have been so unprepared to do this. I'm grateful that I had someone who knew what they were doing, and I just let her do it. Was she? I she think, was eighteen, nineteen, or she was twenty, twenty one. I think she was twenty at this point. Got it. Yeah. And she wasn't prepared to run a household. She didn't know how to cook. She, I mean, nothing. And it, it's not like on their own, I think they would have had many servants. I think they would have had a cook and he would have maybe had a secretary. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it would have been like the way that we are imagining it and the way that they ran our lives later. Um, right. But that was more as public figures and everything. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, however, in real time, not in her, you know, um later perspective she says she basically has a lot of arguments with franklin about it and she says this is a quote 
I did not like to live in a house which was not in any way mine, one that I had done nothing about and which did not re- represent the way I lived. Um, but there was nothing that they could do and nothing changed. And Franklin didn't really feel like he could say anything. Um, a year later, they had their first child, also named Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, but known as Anna. Um, and a year after that, they had James Roosevelt, and who was named after Franklin's dad. Um, in 1909, they had uh, their first Franklin Roosevelt. He unfortunately died the same year. Then they had Elliot Roosevelt in 1910. And then FDR Jr. was born in 1914. And then John Aspinwell Roosevelt was born in 1916. So six kids in total, five living kids. Of them, she later said that Franklin's children were more my mother-in-law's children than they were mine. And Hmm. James remembered Sarah telling the grandchildren, your mother only bore you. I am more your mother than your mother is. Ooh, that's quite the scary thing to say. Isn't it? I mean, the fact that she created her own way into their house was foreboding. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wasn't great. No. What's interesting is, so at this point, they're... um, I mean, Franklin's working a lot. He's in school. He's going to become a lawyer. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I just, I don't know. I find it very interesting because Eleanor's talking a lot about this time about how it was almost a relief to become this like amoebic individual who like didn't make decisions for herself. Like I think maybe it could have been a reaction from how much responsibility she had to take on as a small child Mm -hmm. and then like was able to give it all up. But then obviously was like, wait, no, right. (laughs) This is terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, But then probably felt very trapped by it because what is she supposed to do? And this happens a lot in history with women who had overbearing mother-in-laws who basically raised their children for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Eleanor says that she didn't really know what to do with kids. that She didn't really understand what they wanted or didn't really enjoy being around very small children that much. Okay. Um, but it's not that she didn't love her children. She was deeply devoted to them and to her family. Um, but she was living a very different life than we would now. This is a time when, you know, parents would travel without the kids and that was extremely normal. In fact, it would have been weird if they brought the small children with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're traveling around, they're doing all this stuff in the early days of their marriage. And, it's just not that big of a deal. Um, she had one, um, like nurse, like child's nurse that she loved who was there for like every single one of the kids. And she was like a big fan of this woman. And she later said that she learned a lot from her and really just loved, um, getting to know her well. And she became more and more, uh, she grew in her agency throughout time, but that's also as she matured. I think she was, you know, young. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's basically what encompasses the first 10, 15 years of their marriage. They're traveling around a lot and um, she ends up having a social secretary because at this point, I think, when does FDR become secretary of the Navy? He kind of gets like appointed... um, 
Yeah, so in like 1910, he runs and enters and becomes the New York State Senator. So Eleanor and him are going up and back to Albany a lot, like Mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. And so she's always setting up homes and taking them down. They're not like a settled family, which I think really impacted her and obviously had a lot to do with how how they were like raised and Mm -hmm. her children Mm -hmm. were raised and how she was a part of it, which I think is so – like she doesn't give herself any credit for that. Um, They're going back and forth quite a bit. And that's from 1910 to 1913. He's a senator for three years and they go back and forth a lot. And Eleanor quickly realizes that like she needs to become semi like a public figure for her husband. So she starts going around and wants to meet all of the other women whose husbands are in politics. And she like kind of runs herself a bit ragged doing this. Mm. Um, And then because Franklin supports Woodrow Wilson, who becomes president in 1912, um, Woodrow Wilson appoints him to be the assistant secretary of the Navy, which is like a huge position, Mm. massive, massive position. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a huge part of how they're traveling. And while he's still secretary of the Navy, World War I breaks out. So this is a massive undertaking by this family. They're living in D.C. a lot. She's going back and forth to D.C. and to New York. They are, um, she's entertaining diplomats and people and getting to know them. She later says that she like, doesn't really understand that she didn't have an understanding of how her own government worked as a kid. And it just really highlighted to me, like what her education was about. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't about being well-informed. It was about being a perfect receptacle for a husband, you know? Of course. Um, and so she, because she has so many appointments, she's, a politician's wife and she's a very active one and takes on very strongly. She feels very strongly about doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, she engages a social secretary whose name is, is Lucy Mercer. There it is. <laughs> and in September of 1918, she's unpacking one of Franklin's suitcases and there's a bundle of love letters between Lucy and Franklin. <gasps> no. And she simply says, we can get divorced. I don't care. I, I just don't. We can get divorced. It's fine. Oh. It's fine. And wow. he said that he was leaving. He was thinking about leaving her for Mercer, but his political advisor's name is Louis, Louis Howe. Mm. Um, Louis ends up being an incredible ally to Eleanor throughout their lives. At first, she didn't like him, which is really entertaining. She talks about it. She's like, I never knew how to feel about him. But later she understands, like, basically he always had her back. Mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, funny, Sarah says, the mom, she'll just inherit Franklin if he actually gets a divorce. Interesting. Even though she hates Eleanor. I think it was more well, because she knew it would ruin his political career. Yeah. And also, divorce was a really big deal. It was. I, it like, was. I think that's probably why she was trying to sabotage their relationship before the Very marriage. Very much so. Yeah. Because once yes. the marriage is there, she's it's, it's done. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, interestingly enough, in her autobiography, that's not none of this is mentioned hmm. at all. None of it. What is mentioned is that around 1918, she feels like she wants to become more active politically and in her public life and wants to focus on social work and really makes that her priority. She doesn't mention why. But that's why is because she's like, fine, we have a political p- 
partnership now. We're not really married Mm -hmm. anymore. Right. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ugh, a couple so years sad. later, it's it's horrific. Um, it's not the only time he cheats on her. Well, once a cheater, always a cheater. Always a cheater. Mm-hmm. Ugh. She doesn't deserve any of this shit. Anyway, so the family is vacationing. We're in 1921. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, the war. The war was a big deal. Sorry. I want to talk about the war for a second. It was massive. I normally hate talking about war, but it was a big, big, big deal. Um, It was a massive part of their lives. She becomes hugely involved in the um, Red Cross and all the efforts to support the war. Mm -hmm. She wants to go abroad and support them. She's not able to. Um, so she works actively in the hospitals um, in D.C. and it becomes like her job. She literally runs herself ragged. And then the influenza, the famous Spanish flu is what people called it, but the um, pandemic influenza of 1918 and mm-hmm. 1917 strikes and everyone gets sick. <laughs> And Franklin is, like, very delicate. He seems to be sick a lot. Um, I don't think he had an extremely strong constitution in that way. He was always, like, if there was a sickness going around, he got it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that really worried her because she obviously still did care for him. Um, Mm -hmm. However political their marriage was at that point. Yeah. Um, They do have six kids together. They do have six kids. Well, five. Because one died as a baby. Anyway. The war ends. She goes and visits Europe afterward, which Europe has always been this huge part of her life. And she's very struck by um, the devastation in the country and the people. And it becomes a priority of hers to really serve people and to improve their lives. So as we go through the years, 1921, um, the family is vacationing at their little place in Canada and Franklin comes down with what they thought was called the infantile paralysis disease, which Uh. was polio. Mm. She was such a freaking good nurse that he doesn't die Mm -hmm. and the paralysis stops at his legs. Yeah. So she's a queen. famous. Very. But so Although some people are now saying he had Guillain-Barre syndrome. He didn't have polio. So I'm curious. Hmm. But regardless, there was a paralysis. Yeah. And they were able to rehabilitate. So she is extremely active in any rehabilitation he has. Mm-hmm. And um, she becomes very proud of him. She later says, like, 
everyone told him your career's over. You need to just, you're, you're disabled. That's it. And Mm -hmm. he said, no, Mm -hmm. no. And she fought with him and said, he doesn't need to retire. He has a life worth living still. And I know he has, he has become devoted to the idea of public service Mm -hmm. and wants to do that. His physician later says to her, you have been a rare wife and have borne your heavy duty most bravely and calls her one of his heroines. Hmm. Because of this argument and tension between Eleanor and Sarah with Franklin's like almost death, Mm -hmm. she kind of breaks out from Sarah's control. And later, instead of going to Hyde Park all the time, she constructs this cottage in Valkyll, which is like a Dutch term for waterfall stream. Um, She named it. And it's, it's near the area, but it's so that she and her guests could be away from Hyde Park and be there, but not necessarily be there. And it later, it's now like the Eleanor Roosevelt, like main museum. So Hmm. we should go. Yeah, I would go. I want to go. She ends up um, working and campaigning with him. He decides he wants to run for president and he was approached by running with Herbert Hoover for the running mate. Um, But then Hoover decided he was going to be a Republican and Roosevelt's like, I don't know. Um, And then John Cox won the presidential nomination for the Democrats. Roosevelt becomes his running mate. And it kind of surprised everyone because he wasn't, he was a prohibitionist. Um, He was a Wilsonian, like he was fairly moderate and he was 38. Like, Mm -hmm you know, assistant secretary of the Navy, and it wasn't a big deal. But they end up really becoming a pretty powerful group, although Cox doesn't. But Cox Roosevelt, they were defeated by Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge. They, you know, they don't really end up going far. What they do is they make a very important run for the League of Nations, um, which was the forerunner to the UN. And it was extremely unpopular among people, but they, as part of their campaign, were rehabilitating it. And it ends up being um, like, you know, obviously it becomes popular. It does break down, but they end up obviously being able to um, mm-hmm. move it forward. And 1920s, when she starts becoming really public and she starts seeing herself as this ally for him. She's someone who's devoted to public service and public works. Mm-hmm. And it's something that becomes really important to her. Um, he ends up, um, you know, kind of, they end up trying to work together. He goes back to practicing law after they lose the election. And um, what's interesting is Eleanor starts campaigning for other people. So she establishes herself as a political entity in her own right. So she sees that she has value. And when she says she supports someone, it means something to voters. So she's campaigning for a Democrat to be governor of um, New York against her cousin, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. And everyone hated her. The Roosevelts were like, "Ugh, we don't like her. And her aunt, who was very, very important to her growing up, later wrote to her and said, I just hate to have Eleanor let herself look as she does. Though never handsome, she always had to me a charming effect, but alas, and lack a day. Since politics have become her choicest interest, all of her charm has disappeared. What? And then Eleanor later says, she's just an aged woman. It's fine. And they later reconcile. <laughs> Words were had. <laughs> Words were had. Um, 
And Alice later breaks up with Elnor because they don't support Teddy either. So it's a big deal. And at this point, he wants to run again, but he starts to run as governor and he actually wins. And so he is governor of New York from 1929 to 1932. And this is when the Great Depression hits. And Eleanor is like, hold hold up. We have to do so much more for people than what all of you are doing right now. What are you all doing? Nothing. You need to do so much more for people right now. Mm -hmm. So she campaigns for the Women's Trade Union League. She wants to support a 48-hour work week, minimum wage, abolition of child labor. Mm -hmm. She becomes a massive part of the campaign for that. Um, She ends up creating a school for girls um, that actually teaches them things. Yay. And then, I know. And then part of the depression, what's interesting is she establishes the Valkyll Cottage. She actually establishes it as well as like an industrial area. So she wants to create this like union and industry for women to craft. So to provide income for local families so that they make furniture and crafts and to bring back older crafts that had been that were being lost by time and they were bringing that back and also to provide income for these local families during mm-hmm. the depression right. and it never really became what it wanted but what it did was it inspired a lot of the new deal initiatives that Franklin kind of promoted and she promoted during their um presidential time which lasted 12 years if no one knew um so <laughs> He decides to run for president, and in 1933, she's inaugurated as the first lady of the United States. She's known all of the women who've been president or first lady of, um, who've been first lady since the turn of the century. She's known them all, and she's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be just your hostess. I don't want to do all this. Like, her own predecessor had ended her feminist activities. By saying she only wanted to be a backdrop for her husband, didn't want mm. to detract from it. Mm. And so she doesn't want to do that. She's she's come into her own. All of this has been happening. She writes in her autobiography, like, I didn't know I was a feminist until someone told me that I shouldn't be one, basically. And mm. was like, hold up. I don't agree with you. I'm a feminist. I'm an ardent feminist. I believe strongly in equal rights for women. Mm-hmm. They're campaigning for the... Um, the ERA, well, she actually doesn't love the ERA first because she doesn't believe it's as wide-reaching as it should have been, which I can't disagree with, but anyway. Um, but also for the amendment, uh, the 19th Amendment, all this huge proponent of it. And again, she's just fighting for women's rights. She is a queen. We love it. <laughs> so she becomes First Lady and goes, I'm not giving this up. And she becomes unbelievably controversial. But Franklin supports her and says, I know what you can give to people. You need to do what you're doing. So she keeps doing it. She holds regular press conferences, the first first lady to ever do that. She's also the first first lady to ever speak at a national party convention. And one of my favorite things that she did, and I recommend you all read them, is she wrote a daily column called My Day and also ends up writing a different monthly column and she hosts a weekly radio show. Like she is out there campaigning for what she believes in. 
And I think it's just really extraordinary. I mean, no one did this. This wasn't something people did. Mm -hmm. That's just not what they did. (laughs) And I love that it wasn't like, I believe in this. We should do this. She's like, yeah, I believe in this. We should do this. I'm going to make this happen. Right. She took that extra step. Um, she didn't want to just live off of the presidential salary, which wasn't that much. And so she ends up actually teaching for a little bit and lecturing and writing. And she makes a substantial amount of money. Um, and she becomes like an honorary member of like Phi Beta Kappa because she's done so well. And she lectures about so many important things. Heck yeah. Um, she's traveling like freaking nuts. Mm-hmm. Like she is traveling everywhere <laughs> and she's visiting all of the like labor meetings and she's going to union things and there's a really famous cartoon in the new yorker um she had gone to a mine to visit the um working conditions and the cartoon is very funny it says um like a, a coal miner is peering through a dark tunnel and says to a co-worker for gosh sake here comes mrs roosevelt and so it's just like the satire is how active she was you know and mm-hmm. all the work that she did mm-hmm. she actually what i I think it's interesting. So she started her quote inspections as the wife of the assistant naval secretary where they were like visiting and they were to quote inspect things. And so she learns like, you don't just see what's on the menu to make sure they're eating well. You open the pots and pans and go into the kitchen to make sure that's actually what they're being fed. Like Mm. she is active in inspecting things. And she credits Franklin with that. She says, you know, when I first did this, I didn't know how thorough I needed to be to actually make sure that they were, um, you know, being treated the way they should have been treated. And that's something she carries with her throughout her entire life. Mm. Um, It's a great point. It's an incredible point. And it's something I didn't think of necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, She hosts King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, uh, a couple of times. And they go to Hyde Park and they meet and it's, they, they become kind of, confidants to each other to a degree her and queen elizabeth the queen mother um and she visits the royal family um during the war as well and the second world war which starts because men are stupid and have to start freaking wars all the time um and she just has such an impression of meeting our now sadly deceased queen elizabeth ii um she has such an impression of meeting her she said she was such a serious young girl and she clearly understood like her future duties and was she was so impressed with the questions that she was asking like basically knowing how important things were and she was asking like so what did you find um how did you find the work conditions to be what were your opinions on it and the labor unions, what did you think about this? Do you think that this should be improved? What are your opinions? And she was asking all these questions and she's just this young girl. And she was so, she was like, I just, wow. You know, she was so impressed by her. Mm-hmm. And then later says when she meets her as queen, um, that has, you know, she's become more of a, more, even more serious and dedicated to her duties, but um, was always deeply fond of her and found her pretty incredible political figure in her own right. So she's busy. Eleanor's going around (laughs) and I know she's so busy. (laughs) She starts the American Youth Congress in 1935 and it advocates for youth rights in politics, basically saying you can't just do all this crap for kids and not let them have some representation or have opinions and let them be legitimized. Mm -hmm. It It introduces the American Youth Bill of Rights to the U.S. Congress And her relationship with the AYC leads to the formation of the National Youth Administration, which was part of the New Deal. Everyone knows what the New Deal is, right? 
I think so. A okay, five-second summary. Uh, the New Deal. It's a series of... It's a set of, like, financial reforms, regulations, public work projects, programs, all set to... From, like, 33 to, like, 40 or something like that. And mm-hmm. to create support for farmers, the unemployed youth, and the elderly. It starts the Social Security Administration, the Farm Security Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the, you know, National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933. Like, all of these are very important things. Um, it's it focuses on relief for the unemployed and the poor, recovery of the economy, and reform of the financial system to prevent another depression. And it was extremely divisive. Very divisive. Mm-hmm. It effectively made the Democrats the progressive base and the Republicans the conservative base. That wasn't what was before the New Deal. Mm-hmm. But that's what did it. That's what did it. And it was extremely important in helping to mitigate the effects of the Depression and the war. People love to credit World War II with bringing a country out of depression. And I can't disagree, but I don't know what would have become of human rights and all of that if it weren't for um, the New Deal and all the programs. And a big part of that was Eleanor. She was a huge proponent of the New Deal. She campaigned for it and was also very clear about making the New Deal an equitable situation. So she noticed that the New Deal was benefiting whites way more than blacks and African-Americans. And she said, hold up, I'm sorry, no. So she campaigns to have it be more equitable and no one listens to her. And she still says that it's one of her greatest regrets is that she didn't work harder to ensure the equity of the New Deal policies and programs. Mm. Um, She said that was her biggest regret because it wasn't benefiting women as much and it wasn't benefiting um, literally everyone else as much. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, she's just going nuts. Like she's, everywhere and they're hosting all the people and she's always she's still doing the job of the first lady but she's also literally doing everything else which is why i think it's still just incredible she's like Ugh, the nazis are killing everyone we have to make sure we don't do this there's a dictatorship happening like we got to get rid of this and then the war starts and she becomes a wartime wife and of the president. Like it, it becomes extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, Roosevelt himself was very loath to outwardly support, support the civil rights movement because he needed the support of the South. And she said, you're being stupid. <laughs> no, that's not how this works. Right. You know? No. So she is very clear. She flies with the Tuskegee Airmen. So this was a um, group of airmen who were developed so that they could end up um, actually flying and taking part in the um, war. Mm-hmm. Uh, people didn't want to let them do that. And she was like, well, that's really stupid. Um, I'm going to go fly with them and I'm having the greatest time. We'll post that picture. It's one of my favorite pictures. I love it. <laughs> and she's just in the back of the plane like, yes, this is great. She ends up finding... Um, she invites hundreds of African-Americans to be guests at the White House, maybe important or children or, you know, all the people. She is writing about it in her columns. She's lobbying for funding. She wants all of this to be different. And 
her invitation for students to the White House, black students to the White House, became an issue during Franklin's re-election campaign in like 1936. And she just like did not care. She's like, that's stupid. Well, I yeah, it, it makes sense though. I'm actually kind of surprised. I know. That if he's so progressive. If he no, if he's if he's trying not to anger or like, you know, incite the South. <laughs> it's interesting that she's doing all this i mean i I know that she's like i'm just gonna do what i want but at the same time like you are the wife of the president and Mm -hmm. to not be a united front is a mixed message and like if he's you know do you know what i mean like he yeah you're right yeah she she is it is interesting she is choosing to ruin the thing that he's trying to do I, I support it because I, I agree she, with it. But I'm yeah. saying like if he's actively I think that's interesting, yeah. Trying not I to, think, what she's doing is doing that. Like even if he holds back from it, if if she's doing it, then it means that the two of them as a united front are doing it. Except the fact that she's his weird wife. So the South can kind of he can justify and work around it. I don't think he ended up losing I mean, he was reelected four times. Like interesting. I don't think he ends up losing that ability necessarily but i think he was scared that should he himself do it i mean if his wife is oh, doing okay it, that's I get one that. thing yeah i get that I get she that. establishes herself very early on as her own entity politically like she's her own thing right that's interesting well because i i'm, I'm trying yeah. to think of like a modern example of there isn't one the wife of a president <laughs> you know i mean everything in recent history that the wives of presidents have done has been you know i mean i'm thinking about michelle obama like trying mm-hmm. to get kids to eat healthier that's that's not really like uh <laughs> no it's not really and again talk about changing someone in her obama's image own right yeah no, exactly no, exactly just yeah interesting there's a famous episode in her life when in marion anderson who was an extraordinary singer um she's she's black mm-hmm. um she wanted to she was like singing and she wanted to perform in constitution hall, which is owned by the daughters of the American revolution. And wrote Eleanor was like the president at that point of it. Cause her family's been there for 5 billion years. Right. And when she found out that they wouldn't let her use it, she resigns <laughs> from them and then mm-hmm. says, you know what, we're, where we're going to hold the concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Icon. Icon. And then later, she has Anderson perform at a White House dinner when the King and Queen of England come. Incredible. And everyone was like shocked that a black woman was performing. And she's like, and? Yeah. Say it again. What I was know. that? And? I, <laughs> I love it. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous, but I love that she was just like, no, say it. Go ahead. Right. I'm doing it anyway. I'm doing it anyway. She worked for equal Wages for women. Yeah. She'd be annoyed that we still don't have them. <laughs> yeah. That's always the sad She lobbied part of these. <laughs> to make lynching a federal crime. Excellent. And she was a big fan. She and Walter Francis White, who was the NAACP president, they were big fans. And of each other. He, yeah. And um, stupid Franklin wouldn't publicly support the bill. And it wasn't unable to uh, pass the Senate. But she was like, dude. No. Now that we've clarified their relationship, though, I do kind of love 
that she's able to I do know. this. <laughs> it's amazing. If he feels like he's not, it's great that at least she's... Because she does still have power, I think, you know? I think so, too. Yeah, people in the South hated her. White people in the South hated her. Hated. Yeah, of course they did. Actively hated. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. They... There was a lot of really bad propaganda that started about um, because of her. Um, critics, when race riots broke out in Detroit, critics from the both the North and the South blamed her somehow. Interesting. Um, but because she campaigned so openly and so hard for African-Americans and their rights, they had been previously Republican because this is before Republicans are Republicans by what we right, know them right, to be right, now. Right, right, right. Republican... The Republican base was the base of Lincoln. The Democrats were dickwads. The Southern Democrats are the ones who supported segregation. They suck. But Roosevelt was a Democrat, and it's they're slowly moving that. Switched. Isn't that? Yeah. This is a this is the time of it switching. It's genuinely um, fascinating. Yeah, and so, but because of her, they became active, a reliable block for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Amazing. 1941, December 7th, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. Everyone's starting to get extra racist. She warns against hysteria against minority groups. Mm-hmm. Her husband signs Executive Order 9066, 9066, which uh, is the Japanese internment camp order. And uh, she opposes it. She's criticized for defending them. And the Los Angeles Times asks that she be forced to retire from public life because she... <laughs> defended japanese americans <laughs> she's like get out no <laughs> um just stunning she's like i hear you and i will not be doing that <laughs> i will not do it and i will not do that. um mm-hmm. she didn't like the idea of charity which i think is really interesting because wait, wait, i think what, what happened was what when mean? The rich person idea, like the paternalist, like charity, like I'm going to take care of people who are lesser than myself because I have the money, but I'm not going to actually do anything to better their lives. That was something that was impressed upon her as a young age is that they always, the women have to be philanthropic and support charitable works. And she did that, I think at first, but she realized like, I'm not actually doing anything to help people. Mm. And so she became an outspoken like opponent of it. She was like, you actually need to go and help people. I don't like the idea of like saviors and charitable things. Like it's about working to help people. Oh, that's interesting. I feel like the, the, uh, that sentence is misleading unless it's yeah. explained. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I didn't think about that. <laughs> but it's, it's against helping me, others. <laughs> no, she's against the, the, the idea I'm of like, to say I helped others because the, the idea of charity. Right. The idea of throwing money at a cause without actually. Yes. Right. Completely. Yes, 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 yes. She's like, that doesn't do anything. Yes. I needed one of my favorite explained. things <laughs> is that Roosevelt, she, Okay. Basically, she forced newspapers to have female reporters on staff because she refused to allow men into her um, press conferences. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm into that. It's so good. That I like. This yeah. This right here, this I like. <laughs> it's incredible. And 
Wow. There's a you know woman what, though? Mm-hmm. in support of that. There really is something about being understood by people who are similar to you in a way that people who are not similar oh, to you yeah. cannot understand. I agree. I agree. Into it. I think, she, yeah, I think scientifically, she's just... I agree. <laughs> you know, like finding a therapist who's similar to your race and gender so that they do not uh, belittle your feelings. <laughs> yeah. Love. Yeah. Love. Oh my God. 100%. Love. I mean, I find her this extraordinary kind of force for lifting people up in their own groups as well. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the one who saves everyone. She was a big part of partnering with people who were already working in that capacity. Right. And bringing them up to a more public stance so that they have more influence as well. Absolutely. Which is how you do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how you do it. Mm -hmm. You don't take credit. You don't say you did it. You say, Hey guys, Here's the space for you to have the platform that I also have. Exactly. 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 Love it. Exactly. She's so cool. So she, she's working. She's working hard. Um, she was happy to share her opinions on many things, which I appreciated. World War II happens. She is sad because she goes, here we are fighting for war. No one's going to care about what happens to people back home. I've been fighting for all of these rights for people at home. And now the war is going to happen and it becomes superfluous. Mm. And she kept, so she's like, fine, I'm going to, but I'm going to work hard. So she tries to go work in Europe with the Red Cross. They don't let her do it because she, they're afraid she'll be captured. So instead she works to campaign to allow immigration of European refugee children. And she says, hi, I've heard really scary reports about the Nazis and Jews. I think you need to bring them here. And Franklin, who's anti-Semitic, goes, um, no, I'm going to restrict immigration, actually. I'm going to make it less. Hmm. She secures refugee status for 83 refugees, but is refused most of the time. And she said that her deepest regret, aside from her other deepest regret about um, campaigning harder for New Deal equality, was to not ex- to not force Franklin to have accepted more refugees from Nazism. Mm-hmm. She's like, I I should have done more. Mm-hmm. I should have done more. Um, she worked hard to she co-chaired the Office of Civilian Defense, um, which gave civilian volunteers more role in war preparations that actually is what brought a lot of women into the workforce um and she was a big proponent of bringing women back into the workforce specifically to help with war but also just in general she ends up touring england and she is able to go but she's really there to like inspect and to um kind of rally the troops and she goes through the south pacific and brought up morale because in the 40s in the South Pacific, it was bad. And she is left with like PTSD about the crap she has seen. Mm-hmm. And then Republicans are like, she's using too many resources to travel. And Franklin's like, Franklin's like, you should take a break. And she's like, 
fine. I'm going to campaign for people back home again. And she's like, we're going to get the Tuskegee Airmen to go. And I'm going to get women to be given factory jobs. And I'm going to have African-Americans be able to help more and work. And she's like, I'm going to do all this. And I'm going to get a loan to help people, you know, to start a pilot program for African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. She worked really hard and wanted to, after the war ended, she wanted to deindustrialize Germany and really, really wanted to do it. And to, because she said it would be dangerous for international security if they didn't, I don't know if it ended up, you know, it didn't end up really going through. It was just a proposal, but she was right. <laughs> mm-hmm. She was right. Okay. So on April 12th of 1945, the day after our collective half birthday, (laughs) which is interesting, Franklin, who had been going back and forth um, to Warm Springs, Georgia, which was built around a literal Warm Spring, which was part of a rehabilitative thing for him. He has a cerebral hemorrhage. He's in the middle of a conversation, says, I have a headache, and then slumps over and dies. Oh, wow. Um, And- 40 years. They've been married for 40 years. Wow. Later, it was discovered that Lucy Mercer was with him when he died, even though he promised he was not seeing her and he (sighs) hadn't seen her in many years. What's even more damaging is that her eldest daughter, Anna, had helped them continue the relationship for years. And all the people around them had helped them hide this fact from Eleanor. Amazing. So Anna was like, dad, why are you making me help your mistress? Then she meets Lucy and goes, wait, I like you. Okay. Are you kidding? Mm Mm-mm. Obviously, that's a big uh, wedge between Anna and her mom's relationship. Yeah. Wow. The trust gone. The betrayal present. And then to also find out that anyone after that, I don't know. And also to find out that not only had this relationship been continuing, but she was there when he died and she wasn't. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's crushing. Yeah. Yikes. Eleanor comes forward and follows through with everything in Franklin's will. Um, They turn Hyde Park uh, because they don't have enough money to up- upkeep this house, especially with just her income. Mm-hmm. Uh, they turn it they turn it over to the federal government, becomes a museum. She spends months cataloging it because he was a weird collector of many mm-hmm. things. She moves into a small apartment and then moves into another small apartment and then lives in a small apartment for a long time. Mm-hmm. And she actually ha- helps open the FDR presidential library, which is what starts that tradition of opening presidential libraries for people. Mm-hmm. And then in December of 1945, Harry Truman, who became president after Roosevelt died, says, I want you to help me with the UN. I want you to be a part of this. And he appoints her as a delegate to the General Assembly. She is the only woman. And she was the first chairperson of the UN Commission on Human Rights. And this becomes her baby. This Mm -hmm. is it. Mm -hmm. She, along with some other really important guys, drafts the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is perhaps one of the most extraordinary documents that's been drafted on an international level. She called it the International Magna Carta of All Men Everywhere. And 
she spoke out for it and she worked diligently. And in December of 1948, it was passed almost unanimously, except for Soviet bloc countries and South Africa and Saudi Arabia wouldn't do it. And she said that the Soviet bloc nations didn't like Article 13, which provided citizens the right to leave their own countries. Mm-hmm. Um, she served as the first U.S. representative to the U.N. Commission on Human Rights. So not only was she a chairperson, she ends up serving as the first U.S. representative on it. And she stays on until 1953. She's there forever. <laughs> and then earlier in the 40s, she's the first one of the first people to create a part of the UN agency that specializes in the issues of food and nutrition. So she is a huge proponent of making sure people aren't going hungry around the world. Mm -hmm. That's her. Incredible. I mean, she's just extraordinary. So she creates the food and agriculture, agriculture organization of the UN, the FAO, and she pushes them to create the food from hunger campaign, which is just a huge part of it. And it mobilized NGOs, to help find solutions for world hunger and malnutrition. I mean, she, they, so, and then what's interesting is throughout this time, because she's so, you know, all of this, mm -hmm. people are asking her to run, not to run for office, but to help them run for office. Mm -hmm. And she does end up campaigning a lot for people. Um, she was a big advocate for, anti-McCarthyism says like, this is stupid. You're just hurting people. Mm -hmm. um, some people said that she was very anti-Catholic, um, but I think she just didn't like the idea that there was federal funding for parochial schools. Weird. <laughs> Weird. Um, she worked, I mean, again, like I just, you can't go on and on. I mean, she wanted to make sure that the ERA was actually equal for women. And um, it, in its earlier, equal rights amendment, sorry, in its earlier iterations, it wasn't great. Um, and <laughs> it wasn't equal. <laughs> it wasn't weird. Um, and it wasn't specifically for women. And, um, but later she said that because of the unions that she'd been supporting, the ERA wasn't really a threat to women. Um, and so it ends up being passed. But later it says that um, female equality was achieved through recognition of gender differences and needs and not because of the ERA. So she was kind of right. Um, she, I mean, throughout the 1950s, she is lecturing. I mean, she lectured on average 150 times a year. She's still penning her newspaper columns. She's still doing television and radio broadcasts. I mean, she's just, I don't even know what. I mean, she's, the she starts these busy. foundations. Yeah, she's keeping so busy. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's incredible. And when Bay of Pigs happens, President Kennedy asks her to help negotiate the release of captured Americans with Fidel Castro. That makes sense. She's so cool. I love her. <laughs> so let's talk about one of the elephants in our room, her sexuality. Oh. Not, I, I don't know if I have opinions on whether or not. I realize that was an elephant. <laughs> really? Oh, it's a big no. one. I didn't, I don't have many opinions about it because she never has anything written about it. So I always hold off from making assumptions or opinions 
firm opinions based on something if I don't have all the evidence for it. What we do know is that there was a reporter for the um, AP named Lorena Hickok who was unbelievably close with Eleanor. And there are quite a few letters in between them. Um, They wrote 10 to 15 page letters to each other daily. Um, Hickok wanted to write a biography of her. They didn't like being apart when they weren't apart for Frank's inauguration in 1933. She wears a sapphire ring that Hickok had given her. It's Lorena Hickok was openly as open as you could be at the time, a lesbian, but it just seems like Eleanor either wasn't committed to it or was obviously quite, um, closeted for many reasons. Um, they do mention in their letters to each other, some physical stuff, um, that they longed to kiss each other and to hold each other. Didn't like being away from each other, wanted to lie down beside her and take her in her arms. Um, that's what we have now. That's quite compelling as evidence, um, mm-hmm. for it, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. Um, there's also some evidence that Eleanor may have had relationships with other men, um, aside from her very unfaithful husband. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that's the thing is like, what's hard for me is like, I don't, this has become a huge part of the narrative around her and not that it's not important, but like compared to literally everything else she did, mm-hmm. I'm not bothered by it that much. I think what's extraordinary is that if she was openly in, if she was in love and had this relationship, she had it at great risk to herself. And I think it's really incredible. Um, it's pretty clear that whatever relationship she had with Hickok was romantic in nature. I think that seems clear. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say I know that they did this or that didn't do this because I don't know. And that's not necessarily something that, you know, I feel like I need to make a judgment call on because mm-hmm. this is a woman who lived her life publicly and suffered a lot of personal blows, a lot of personal blows. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if it's necessarily my need to comment more on that. Um, She may have had a relationship with her, um, a New Deal administrator named Harry Hopkins with a sergeant named Earl Miller, who is one of her bodyguards. It's just, obviously, I mean, I'm of the mind that if she was able to find personal happiness in that way, I'm happy for her because she wasn't given it as a child and she wasn't given it as a married woman. Right. So right. I hope that that, if that's what happened, I hope it was good. And I hope she had a good time and felt loved the way she deserved to be loved. You know, I agree. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't really know. Like, yeah, I don't know if I necessarily feel like I need to make a huge judgment call on it. Um, like I said, I just think it's really interesting. I mean, Hickok was a huge political campaigner as well. Um, she was very, very important in that as a reporter. Um, yeah. So their relationship kind of peters out as she becomes more active as first lady. Um, and Hickok is like, where are you? I don't really see you all the time. And Roosevelt's like, I'm trying 
so hard to work so hard for all these people. And I'm sorry, um, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. So Eleanor, you know, her kids are doing all of these amazing things. She's, they're campaigning. What I find very interesting is a lot of her kids have a lot of financial scandals. I don't know what to make of it. Okay. I don't know. Like her son, FDR Jr. is like kind of embroiled in some kind of potential financial stuff. It's never actually, it's never actually confirmed, but I kind of feel like it's, if you have it happen three or four times throughout your career, it's probably sticking, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1960, she's diagnosed with aplastic anemia because she was hit by a car. What? Yeah. Hit by a car. Got anemia from being hit by a car? I guess so. What's aplastic? Aplastic anemia. Yeah, your body's not producing blood cells in sufficient numbers. Wow. That's bizarre. I don't know if it was because of that, but it was soon after getting hit by a car. Maybe I should have. Maybe that's what it is. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyway. But so in 1962, she's given steroids. And unfortunately, it activates a dormant case of TB. And she dies of cardiac failure on oh East seventy fourth Street. My goodness. On November seventh of nineteen sixty two, as cared for by her reconciled daughter Anna. Um, JFK, who was the president at the time, says all flags should be lowered to half staff throughout the world. American, all U.S. flags throughout the world um, should be lowered mm. it, to half staff. Mm-hmm. Funeral services were held in Hyde Park. She's next to her husband in the Rose Garden. Um, And President Kennedy, VP Lyndon Johnson, future president, Truman and Eisenhower were all there for her personal funeral, which I think is really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Um, Her family deeds, their other vacation home, the one in Canada, and um, they create a park of it. To this day, you can walk alongside Riverside Park in Manhattan near where um, I think it's like East 72nd. And there is a statue of her looking very pensive and thoughtful. And yeah, so, I mean, here's, here's one of the most extraordinary women of the 20th century, um, worked her life to try and better other situations. And I think she's just like, the more I learn about her, the more in awe I always am of, of her. And I'm, I'm so honored to share a birthday with her. Heck yeah. It's so cool. She's so cool. That is kind of the perfect birthday buddy for you. Is it? Oh my god, thank you. I'm I so think obsessed. so. I'm I'm obsessed. I think she's so cool. <laughs> and I'm like, I was so excited to have an opportunity to reread her autobiography that I hadn't read in so long. It felt nice to have. Yeah, I feel like the, one could talk about her for like days. Years. Yeah, yep. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I yep. could podcast about her for days in a row. Yeah, I mean, she's just... There's a lot there. I recommend, yeah, if you if you guys want, you can go through and read the My Day column, which has been, mm. um, I think they have digital versions of all of it, which mm-hmm. is amazing. I mean, she wrote for Vogue. She wrote for Ladies Home Journal. She wrote for, I mean, you name it. She wrote for them. There's material so to cool. ingest. <laughs> Truly. And she wrote probably 10 or 15 different kinds of books. Like she wrote, or more than that, she published books about her father she wrote a book called It's Up to the Women, When You Grow Up to Vote, A Trip to Washington, This Is My Story. She wrote um, The Moral Basis of Democracy. 
Um, she writes about the UN, about India and the awakening East. And she writes about ladies of courage and, you know, so she has all these different, um, her autobiography is actually a, a compilation of three different books that she published separately, which have been published all together in 1962, I think, mm-hmm. or 61, excuse me. And that's the one that I read. It's, it's her couple different ones. One of her great books that she wrote is called You Learn by Living. And I, I genuinely recommend reading it. It's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. And I mean, she has so many great quotes. One of my favorites of hers is that the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Queen. Absolutely freaking queen. Hmm. Ugh. Obsessed. So that's Eleanor Roosevelt. Go Heck read. Yeah. Go see all the stuff. Go enjoy. Just <laughs> take in mind what she yeah. believed and go forth, you know? Hmm. I love that. I'm obsessed with her. It's fine. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank Hope you, you guys enjoyed. <laughs> I know I did. <laughs> oh, good. No, I did. I did. Amazing. Um, okay. And yeah, we will talk to you in a m- month. <laughs> Happy spooky season. Happy spooky season. You're right. Go forth and be spooky. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>